Welcome to The Whole Truth with Jill Rosenzweig, a podcast which endeavors to expose the truth behind legal stories that are distorted by mainstream media. And now, here's your host, passionate truth seeker and veteran attorney, Jill Rosenzweig. Welcome to another episode of The Whole Truth with Jill Rosenzweig. I am your host, Jill Rosenzweig, and today we're going to be talking about the college admissions scandal. So for those of you who don't know the story, I thought I'd give a little bit of background before we bring our guest on. On March 12th, 2019, the the story came out that there were about 50 people that were charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud. Uh, This had to do with um, a bunch of parents essentially bribing their way into getting their children admitted to top-tier universities, uh, either by paying off coaches or specific administrators at the school. Uh, That was one way in which this scheme was conducted. And then the other way was by having their children's SAT scores falsely inflated. Um, And so you know, essentially cheating their way into getting into these schools. And um, at the heart of the story is an individual named Rick Singer. Um, He owned two different companies, uh, one of which was a college and career network company, and the other was a nonprofit organization. And essentially what Rick Singer was doing was that he was telling parents that if they signed up with him and gave him a substantial sum of money, that he could effectively guarantee that their children would get into these top-tier schools. Um, And so there were about 33 parents who signed up and got charged for this, uh, including people like Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin, uh, who have been all over the news, and people are talking about them mostly because they're recognizable people. Uh, But there are also other very wealthy individuals from all over the country who got charged with the same uh, conspiracy to commit mail fraud, uh, one of whom I discussed during the interview. So when I talk about a lawyer being charged, I'm talking about this person named Gordon Kaplan, who was a senior manager, um, a managing partner, from what I understand, at a top tier New York law firm. And so I discuss him briefly during the interview as well. Um, So anyway, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Being that my background is not in criminal law, I thought it would be great to bring on a criminal law attorney. Uh, So the person that I invited today is Lou Shapiro. He's a renowned and accomplished criminal defense attorney here in Los Angeles. And I really want to hear what he had to say. So uh, let's get started with the actual interview. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. All right. So now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Lou Shapiro. He is a state and federal criminal defense attorney here in Los Angeles, and I'm very excited to have him here today. So thank you so much for joining us. You got it. Thanks for having me. Uh, So I wanted to talk to you about the college admissions scandal Um, I know that there's been a lot in the news about it, but I wanted to ask you some kind of more specific questions about the charges. Um, So I know that it says, uh, you know, I've read the affidavit and it says that these the parents were charged with violating uh, Title 18 
of the United States Code Section 1349. I tried to figure out myself what that means. I know that it says that um, they were charged with conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest services mail fraud. And I was wondering if you could just explain what that means. Sure. So in the U.S., mail and wire fraud is basically any fraudulent scheme to intentionally deprive another of property or honest services using mail or wire communication. So it's, it's commonly used in, in situations where basically you're doing something wrong and you're using the mail or wire, bank wiring services to accomplish that. So applying that here, the argument is that uh, let's say someone was taking the SATs for somebody else and then that score is then sent via, via electronically or in the hard copy mail to the university, there is the, it's, it's, there's no crime of, uh, taking the SAT for someone else, but there is a crime of doing something fraudulent and using the mail service in order to basically perpetuate that. Interesting. That's That's what they're claiming. Yeah. Okay. So, cause I thought, um, and I should explain, I do not have a criminal law background. Um, so I'm, I'm basically like the average person listening to this, but, um, I, in my mind, I assumed that it meant that there were funds wired and that the funds, because the funds were for an unlawful purpose, that was the crime. That's another way of it being applied. So okay. any instance of like, that's just a good example of it as well. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Um, and I, I guess my question is, um, if if they're convicted, what do you think the parents face here? I mean, I looked at the law. Um, I know it says in, in the code itself, it says that they face up to 20 years in prison and a fine of $250,000 plus restitution. But I would assume that's not realistically what will happen here. Right. At any sentencing, a judge is mandated uh, by the United States Federal Sentencing Guidelines Manual to not only take into account the offense at hand, but the defendant's entire life, what they've achieved, their accomplishments, their contributions to society, both professionally, academically, and in a charitable sense. And most of these parents, if not all of them, basically can check off all those boxes. So, I, I think it's uh, I think it's really unlikely that these parents are going to be doing, um, you know, custody time. If custody time, it would be a limited amount to where I think the judge will tell them, you know, I want you to see, I want you to know what it looks like to see the inside of a cell. Sometimes the judge will be like that. Um, a, a lot of it's going to depend on which judge to get assigned um, to the case. But overall, I, I'm. 20 years or 10 years or even eight, seven, six. I don't know. I just, I don't see that being a viable outcome for the parents in my experience in this. Do you see it realistically? Do you think they will have to pay some monetary fine? I I would think that probably would make sense under the circumstances. Yeah, we can, we can definitely expect significant fines uh, to be paid as a result. And I think there'll be a significant amount of community service, uh, as part of it in order to, because this was a, an alleged, this is an alleged crime of abuse and wealth and power. And what better way uh, to address that 
or to repent for that by doing community service, doing, you know, rolling up your sleeves, putting on those kinds of clothes and, uh, and work in the grounds. And, you know, that, that, what better taste of humility is, is there than that? Right. That, that makes sense to me. Um, and when you say the judge, does that mean that all of these cases will be handled by the same judge? Is that typically yes. how this will work? Yeah, we, especially for, they call it judicial economy. Um, oh, okay. So that way you don't have different judges trying to relearn all the facts. It just makes sense for, for one judge to handle all the matters. Uh, and it just, it just moves the system much cleaner and faster for everybody. And that would be concurrent, right? So all the cases will be for, be before the same judge at the same time, but separate. I would now, imagine it, is it separate sentencing? Like it, it it works separately in that regard. Yes, it probably would be separate sentencing. Now, look, sometimes you can have a lawyer and client who wants to wants what's called to paper a judge to file a motion to accuse a certain judge right. uh, for some reasons. But short of that. Uh, yeah, everybody will be before the same judge. I think, I think sentencing uh, could be, you know, like as like one after the other. They're not going to have like let's say five people standing there, and then each one has, you know, would want its separate, you know, slot. Got it. Okay. And do you think that um, effectively one person's outcome will impact another's? Or do you think that the judge will look at each person's life separately, like you mentioned, and sort of, uh, you know, address that person based upon their life story and whether or not they have prior convictions or anything of that nature? Look, I, I think that a judge is definitely going to overall take into account what he's going to be sentencing everybody to. He's going to look at the totality of the defendants, right? And right. determining, okay, where am I going to put, what am I going to sentence the orchestrators to? And the coaches and the educators and the parents, he's probably going to have a range or she's going to have a range, you okay. know? And then, and then within that range, depending on each defendant's personal story and presentation and, and, and sentencing memorandums and so forth, will make the determinations within that range. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm listening to you and thinking of class action lawsuits on the civil side, and it works similarly. Um, so there's typically a range, and it works it, it works somewhat similarly, um, you know, in terms of what you're saying. So that makes sense to me. Um, and I I guess I had a question for you um, in terms of the specific parent, you know, which whichever parent it is. Do, do you think the court looks at uh, whether or not they thought the person understood the implications of what they're doing. Um, you know, specifically, I mean, I, I look at the attorney, Gordon Kaplan, and I think to myself as an attorney, will he be viewed differently um, as opposed to a parent who has no connection to the law or understanding things of that nature? Yeah, definitely. I mean, attorneys are always held, I, I find, to a higher standard. Right. When they're in a court of law. Um, right. So now in terms of how that will translate into his, into his punishment, I don't think it's going to, to be a game changer. Um, I think he'll be admonished a lot more sentencing by a judge, you know. But, but remember, uh, the fact is he's going to have state bar issues as a result of this. Right. Okay. 
And a sentencing judge is going to find that to be uh, important and relevant in, in determining, look, if he's already getting a state bar suspension or some type of discipline, then that's going to, I think, a reasonable sentencing judge is going to hold back a little bit there. Be like, well, you are getting punished there. Interesting. So, what, okay. You know, yeah, there, there's going to be that, I think, internal trade off that a sentencing judge makes mm-hmm. on those things. And how long do you expect this case to last? I mean, what's in terms of the timeline? What's the typical timeline of a case like this? I mean, that's a typical timeline of, of any kind of federal case could be easily this is a two to three years. Um, okay. However, we may see that because we're dealing with high profile people involved that, you know, in order to tr- they try to move things more quickly so that way they can uh, reinvent themselves, so to speak, right? In the public eye, you may see some, some early admissions and taking of responsibility in order to, like I said, quickly start the rebuilding process in their careers. Okay. And when you say, when you say admissions, you're talking about plea deals? I think plea deals, yeah. Okay. And we're already hearing in the news today that the, the you know the, the federal government is is saying, look, we want we want some responsibility to be taken now. Okay. Yeah, you know, like we we want to move this. Interesting. So. Um, and what do you think about the kids? I mean, I haven't heard anything in the news about them being pursued criminally. Um, do you think that will happen? No, I don't expect the kids to be pursued criminally. Um, I do think that they are, will be facing school disciplinary actions, though. Uh, any school that was uh, involved or named in this is already doing their own internal investigations into the students to see if they're still in the school, if they've applied, if they've graduated, and then looking at their own personal handbooks and disciplinary guidelines to see what the appropriate action should be taken on each student. Right. And I know I, I heard you in an interview saying that you thought it was possible that the schools could potentially uh, revoke um, diplomas. Do you think that they would go that far, or do you think more realistically they would take other measures? I guess it's uh, speculative think, yeah. at this point, but I don't think any. I don't think anything's off the table. I know that they've announced. I, I think uh, USC announced today uh, that any any you know applications that are that are pending uh, that are involved will be rejected. Anyone that's currently in the school uh, are not are not able to register for the next semester, uh, and then so you kind of build on that. Once they find out, other people maybe who have already graduated, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they took that that punitive route because mm-hmm. they're just they're just livid about this. Yeah, understandably. Um, and and what about? I guess, um, you know, the final legal implication that I've thought about is the tax fraud element in terms of making donations to a charity. And so those funds could be funneled through to pay off, um, you know, the SAT administrators or the school administrators. Right. So, I mean, that that obviously is uh, it's kind of like, you know, you you're adding salt to, to, to a wound here. Right. You know? So I, I think that's going to come back to bite everyone in sentencing too. that issue. It's like, not only is there cheating or bribery going on, but then in addition to that, everyone's getting the tax write off on this. I mean, come on. Right. You know, I think that, I think that the, the devil's advocate response to that as well, 
I mean, that wasn't the heart of this. I didn't go into this, Your Honor, to, to get a tax write-off. I went into this to get my kid into a school. Um, this is just the mechanism that I was instructed to do. You right. Know what I mean? So that, that, the judge needs to be reminded of that. Yeah, and no, that, that makes sense. I think that's honest, you know. Right. I, I mean, I think I saw in the affidavit one of the parents – their reaction when they heard that they could get a tax write-off was like, oh, great. You know, so it's obvious that they didn't, that wasn't their intention all along, but they consider it to, it to be a bonus. Um, but to me, I guess, looking at it uh, from an outsider's perspective, you have these people who have uh, a ton of uh, disposable income. They can use the money how they see fit. And then not only are they paying all this money, but then they get the tax write-off. So it's like they, they ended up getting away with this. Um, well, if they had gotten away with it, but you know, the whole, the whole scheme really didn't even cost them anything in the end. Um, so that, that in and of itself is just so uh, disturbing, I'm sure to most people who don't have those kinds of funds to do something like this. Yes. It's an aggravating and inflaming factor. Right. To everybody. Right. Learning about this. Yeah. Totally. Um, so I, the, the biggest question I have, and when I have this conversation with people about what happened, the thing that I keep hearing from people um, is how is this any different than rich families donating tons of money to schools to essentially buy their way into getting their kids into admitted to a good college? Um, you know, what takes this from, you know, that typical scenario into a criminal scenario where they've violated a law and now they need to be, you know, brought in front of a judge. Okay. So the answer to that is that the, the distinction is in the, we're called, they call, as, as Mr. Singer calls it, right. And at the front door approach. Right. Right. Versus a side door, I guess. Yeah. Right. There's front door, side door, and back door. So front door is, you get the grades, you got the qualifications, you go in. You got the back door, which is the building, like you just said, or an endowment, right? Right. And then there's the, there's the side door, which is this this process that was used. So just to distinguish between the side door and the back door, the difference is with the, with the side door policy, the money that's being sent is not being sent directly to the university. And there's also a quid pro quo that's happening uh, with the side door approach. So to just flesh that out, let's go back to the back door for a second. Family has a kid that wants to go to, to Harvard, right? right? Gives an endowment of a million dollars, let's say. There's no guarantee. There's nothing black and white in writing that says if you give an endowment, your kid's going to Harvard. There may be an understanding, there may be a wink, there may be a handshake, but there's it's still there's no written guarantee on that. Right, right. And there's a there's still that element. It may not maybe not maybe won't get in. Right? There's a there's a hope that it'll get in, but there's no guarantee. In this situation, you have a nonprofit that's being set up for the purpose of just funneling money through to other people, not to the university. So and there's a there's an understanding that if you do this, there will be an exchange for the money. There's a, there's a, and, and that, again, the person who's making that decision is not the university, but it's, it's a, it's a middleman, so to speak. Right. And, and that's, and that's the, that's the big difference here. You know, obviously and we haven't, we haven't even spoken about, you know, 
the cheating and the SATs and, and people taking their tests and correcting. We didn't even go there. That's a whole other element of, of deceit. Yeah. But if you just to put that aside and you compare them, you know, side by side without that, that's that's the big difference. Right. And I mean, obviously, the SAT aspect of it is really different in that, you know, there are false SAT scores being submitted to a school and the school has no idea. And they're they're essentially lying their way into the school as opposed to paying someone off. Right. So, I mean, to me, that they're different and, and it's like they're offensive in different ways to me. Um, the, the one is, one is, sorry, let's finish that. One is perpetuating deceit, falsehood and bribery. And the other one is perpetuating wealth and, uh, and persuasion and connections. Right. Right. They're both not great, but to different extents. And, and what do you think, I guess it doesn't really come into play in terms of, um, I, I don't know if it'll come into play in the actual cases, but the idea of, having kids pretend essentially fake that they have learning disabilities so that they could set up this whole system of removing them from a typical testing facility to move them to these other testing facilities where then they could have this fake proctor oversee the exam. I mean, for me, I guess as a parent, setting aside being a lawyer for a second, just the idea of a kid faking that they have a learning disability so that they could gain an advantage is so disturbing. And I just don't know how the court looks at that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an insult and and it's very offensive to, to parents of children with learning disabilities. And unfortunately they're going to, they will probably suffer uh, to some extent from this, because now they're, you know, when someone says they have, they have a learning disability, that's going to be all the more scrutinized. Right. Now. Exactly. Yeah. And that's so, going to be a direct result of this. Um, my, yeah. And that will play into sentencing too. You think it will affect sentencing? Yes. You do? Yeah. Interesting. I a, yeah. I think, yeah, I think a judge will definitely bring that up. And I think it's, in, it's important for a defense attorney uh, to, to raise that beforehand, probably. Uh, to be like, look, we my client also acknowledges that this was also uh, really inappropriate and really offensive and apologizes to those families as well that have children with learning disabilities and really do deserve and need those extra services and time to complete their exams. So is the approach of a defense attorney to essentially identify the issues that they think the court will be most upset about with respect to their client and get ahead of that by apologizing and and for the the client to appear contrite is that the the strategy in a case like this absolutely and think of it like any like a regular apology that's what sentencing is you're you're approaching the person you've harmed and you're telling them i'm sorry for what i've done and just saying sorry is not enough right a real apology is i'm sorry for doing this i'm sorry for hurting this and i never should have done this and the more factors you can get ahead of from the beginning i think and obviously genuinely uh i think the more effective uh somebody is when they're asking for mercy before the judge right interesting um yeah well i i'm curious to see how this plays out uh so i'll definitely be keeping an eye on it but i appreciate you coming on so much 
Um, because, you know, there are just so many questions when there's a case like this where it's not my background, but I find it so fascinating. And I, I, I try to bring myself back to my first year of law school and remember the fundamentals of criminal law. But, you know, at a certain point, I get a little bit stuck. So I really appreciate you coming on. No worries. That's what I'm here for. Thank you. Um, and uh, where can people find you? So LouisShapiro.com is my website, which has my contact info. And uh, you can follow me on Facebook at Lou Shapiro, um, where I think it's it's becoming, fortunately, one of the leading legal platforms for what's going on in your everyday legal lives. I love following you on there. So I agree with that. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's, it's great. Um, and very funny, too, which is a, a really nice change from a lot of the things I see on Facebook. So uh, my pleasure. That's the end. Yeah, good. OK, well, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. And uh, let's get together soon. You got it. OK, take care. OK, bye. bye. So there you have it. I want to thank Lou Shapiro again for coming on the podcast. Um, he's just so intelligent and insightful, and I definitely learned a lot after speaking with him, so I hope you did too. Uh, before I finish this podcast, I wanted to touch upon just a couple of things that I didn't cover with Lou, uh, the first of which has to do with um, William H. Macy not being charged while his wife, Felicity Huffman, was. I, I kind of, um, you know, I was perplexed as to why that happened. My theory was that the funds that were used to wire to uh, the foundation that was being used to funnel the funds through might have been coming from a bank account that was solely held by Felicity Huffman. And so that was my initial theory. But I I think that the real reason as to why Felicity Huffman was charged and William H. Macy was not is that when you look at the affidavit. Um, so there was an affidavit that was filed. It was prepared by an FBI agent. And when you look at it, you see that um, there are allegations by the witness who, it's my understanding, is Rick Singer, who's the owner of um, this key company that was, you know, essentially at the helm of this entire scandal. Um, it seems like Rick Singer told the FBI that he met with Felicity Huffman and William H. Macy. Um, but when it, when you look at the actual emails that are exchanged, none of those emails are written by William H. Macy. All of them seem to be written by Felicity Huffman. So when it comes to hard evidence, there really is no hard evidence against William H. Macy. There's only the story by Rick Singer, who implicates William H. Macy. So my theory is that the government decided not to charge William H. Macy because they just didn't have enough hard evidence against him. Uh, what's interesting is the couple contemplated rigging the SAT score for their second child, their daughter, um, and they do have there there is evidence of William H. Macy writing emails to Rick S Singer. But ultimately, they decided not to pursue it with the second daughter. And so, you know, the only hard evidence that there really is against William H. Macy is for a situation in which they contemplated doing this thing again, but they ultimately decided not to. Um, so that's my theory. I could be completely wrong. 
Um, but that's my guess as to why Felicity Huffman was charged and William H. Macy was not. Um, and then the other thing that I don't know if you're wondering about, and I don't know if you saw this in the Wall Street Journal, but I'd also been wondering how exactly uh, these people got caught and how the story came out. And, um, you know, there was a story that was published by the Wall Street Journal about a week ago. And according to the story, there was a financial executive uh, living in Los Angeles who has ties to Yale University. Uh, his name is Maury Tobin. And apparently he is the one that uh, tipped off the FBI as to what was going on. Apparently, uh, he was approached by the soccer coach at Yale uh, who offered to admit his daughter into Yale in exchange for $450,000. And so he ended up telling the FBI about that, and they ended up pursuing the story from there. So I just thought that was interesting because I was curious to know how this thing came out in the first place. Uh, but thank you again for listening. If you'd like to reach me, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can reach me via email. My email address is thewholetruthpod at gmail.com. Um, and you could also find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is thewholetruthpodhq. And also um, on Instagram, it's thewholetruthpod on Instagram. So I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. And um, I'm looking forward to the next one.